as you can see, this is a communion Sunday. And now for over two years, we have spent our time in Isaiah chapter 53 on a communion Sunday, and today is no different. Uh, Isaiah 53 is where we will be. Actually, this will be our, our last week that we will use Isaiah 53. There's other wonderful passages we're spending time in as well. So today I want to kind of sum up the entire chapter. But as we have a communion table set before us, let's remember, first of all, the two basic statements that this makes. We see the the bread and we see the cup set before us. And the first thing that reminds us of is how great our sin is. How great our sin is. Jesus Christ died for our sins. What is the wages of sin? Death. Who, who rightly deserved that penalty? We did. This is a reminder uh, that he died for us. And that's a reminder of how great our sin is. And yet, it's a reminder of another thing too. How great is his mercy. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that he took our place? It's just a wonderful thing. But that that could could change me. That that could deal with the thing that I had the biggest issue with. And that was sin and separation from God. That He can restore me to a relationship with God that I could have never done. But He could bring me before the Father and I could be called His Son. That I could have the hopes of eternal life. That I can have... All the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies given to me. That is mercy. Something we don't deserve. But that's what this reminds me of every time we participate together. Jesus simply told his disciples to remember me. Every time you do this, you remember, right? Remember me. Do we need somebody to tell us to remember Christ? That's what this does. It reminds us of what he has done for us. And, and so I like coming to this table. And we do that on the, the fifth Sunday. If there's a fifth Sunday in a month, uh, we do that. Which comes out to about four times a year. Last year we actually had five. But this is number three this year. And we have one more. And that will be on the last Sunday of the year. Right after Christmas we have another fifth Sunday. So we'll be able to uh, share this table one more time before this year is out. But, as we walk through this passage in Isaiah 53, there were eight points, today's the eighth one I'd want to make, that emphasizes uh, the simple message of Isaiah 53. The first one we, we encountered was that we are sinful and deserve God's wrath. A very clear statement of that is made in verse 4, 5, and 6. Surely, our griefs, whose griefs? Ours, our griefs, he himself bore. And our sorrows, whose sorrows? Ours, he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for whose transgressions? Our transgressions. He was crushed for whose iniquities? Our iniquities. The chastening of 
our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. We are sinful, and we deserve God's wrath. Second point we've seen as well is we are rebellious and we refuse to listen to God's truth. Even the way Isaiah started this message, verse number one, who has believed our message? Who? Who has been listening to God's truth? Who will believe? Thank the Lord he broke through the callous hearts that we have, that we might believe. The third thing we've noticed as well as we've studied through this is Christ came into our spiritually barren, morally depraved world. What a remarkable thing that is, that he, the pure Son of God, should come down to a world like ours. Yet he did, and we know that's true. Verse 2 especially emphasizes, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. Came to a spiritually barren, morally depraved world. Number four, we've noticed also that Christ not only just came here, but he took our sin. He took our punishment. The physical suffering of Christ is, is just Incredible to consider. But back in verse 4, when it talked about our griefs, He Himself bore them. When it talked about our sorrows, He carried them. When it talks about what we deserved as the smiting of God and the affliction of God, and in verse number 5, the piercing and the crushing and the chastening, He took all that, didn't He? That was ours too. And he took our sin and our punishment. And remarkably, absolutely remarkably in all this, and this act that he did on our behalf, he also took our ridicule and our shame. Now in that, there's more than just the fact that we deserve the ridicule. <laughs> we deserve the shame. But we turn that on him. As he's, as he's carrying the very thing that we could not carry in paying for the sins that we could not pay for. Verse 3 says, He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Wow, what words those are. As he's taken our punishment, we didn't even esteem him for it. He was despised. Sometimes we, we go beyond the physical and we understand that the mental suffering of Christ to be rejected by this world, that's hard. You ever been rejected before? But to also have his father turn away from him, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I can't even fathom the degree of suffering he went through. And we are the ones who heaped it on him. What kind of mercy is this that he should love us still? But we've seen that as well as we walk through this passage. Uh, sixth item we saw is that even in all this, Christ's death satisfied our need. His need, and even the Father's need. In verse number 10, it said that the Lord was pleased to crush him. What an incredible statement. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. We're going to give a little more emphasis to that yet today. But 
there is a satisfaction in all this work that Christ has done for us. Item number seven. Here's the beauty of it, I think. Some will believe the message. Some will believe the message. You, this morning, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe the message, don't you? Well, look at verse number 11. All of a sudden, there you are. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By the knowledge of my righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. He will justify the many. You're part of that group through Jesus Christ. He will save some, right? Some will believe the message. Now today I'm going to give the the cap of the whole picture and it's in verse 10 and in verse number 12 and it's simply this, that with all that has been said about the suffering of Christ and his payment on our behalf and the difference it's made, Christ will get the glory. Christ will get the glory. Verse 10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressor. There's a couple of wonderful thoughts in here. Matter of fact, a lot of them. But today I just want to focus on the glory that Christ will receive. How do we describe glory? We've got all kinds of ways perhaps we'd like to do it. Uh, How would you draw it? There's a story I, I probably have told this many times before. That's okay. After 24 years, you're allowed to uh, say the same story more than once. All right? There's a, a story about a first grade boy drawing a picture of God for a classroom assignment, and he was taking a lot longer than what it usually would take. And the teacher needed to move the students on to something else and finally came up and said, you know, you've got to be done by now. He says, I'm not done yet. I've got to draw this picture. And she says, what are you drawing? She says, he says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she says, well, you can't do that. No one's ever seen God. He says, oh, they will when I'm through. I like that little story. How do you draw a picture of that which is beyond our imagination and even beyond our capability of expressing? How do you draw glory a yellow crayon is a good start. you got to start with a color, right? A yellow crayon. These two verses before us speak of the glory that the Lord is to receive. There's a common thread between these two verses, verse 10 and verse number 12. Both of them speak of the Lord's death. Obviously, the whole, song, uh, the whole chapter does, but it says the Lord's was pleased to crush him in verse number 10. The crushing of him, the putting him to grief is mentioned also in verse number 10. And in that, the Messiah's willingness to give himself as this guilt offering. And in verse number 12, of pouring himself out to death. See, as the Lord was pleased to do this, he rendered himself 
verse 10 says. He rendered himself as a guilt offering. And in verse number 12, he poured out himself to death. These acts that he did on our behalf, it speaks of what he's done. Now, a guilt offering is quite an incredible thing to contemplate. We obviously do not uh, practice this kind of an offering thing when we take up an offering in our service, do we? We don't have people bringing their animals, and thankfully I don't have to slay them, um, and then take portions of the animal and put them on the altar in order to burn it before you. But Scripture gives us a lot of instructions on that. It was in the days of Israel in the Old Testament. They had their tabernacle for so many years, and then eventually they had their temple. The Lord gave them instruction on offerings. Guilt offerings specifically, he spells out in Leviticus uh, chapter number 5. Talks about bringing an unblemished ram. Now there's a variety of different offerings. So you say ram, there's sometimes lamb, sometimes there's bulls. There's different animals that are brought for different reasons. But it says to bring an unblemished ram. You bring it to the priest. And there at the entrance of the tabernacle, he would meet you there. And there you would have your ram. Now he would ask you, what is this offering for? And you were to specify, because it could have been a guilt offering, it could have been a peace offering, it could have been a sin offering, it could have been a, there was a variety of them. And uh, you had to specify, because each one had a different procedure. And the priest had to follow through according to that procedure. And more than not, what he would have you to do, like in a guilt offering, you at that entrance would actually lay your hands on the head of that animal, and you would say... What it is that you're guilty of. Huh, wouldn't that be uncomfortable? But they had, to, they had to acknowledge their part, their identity, with the sin. That this ram was going to be a substitute for. And that, that's quite a picture to me. And, and again, it's not one that we're accustomed to. But could you imagine if that was the case? That you had to bring this animal and you had to lay your hands on it and you had to say exactly what that animal represented to you. A couple of verses that I find very interesting. One is in Hebrews chapter 7. Matter of fact, all of these are in Hebrews. But let's go over there for a minute. Notice the particular words that are spoken here. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse number 24 is a good place to start. Hebrews 7.24 says, But Jesus, on the other hand, became, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Try to picture this now. Here you come up to this priest in order to offer the sacrifice, and he says, your sacrifice won't do, I will take its place. 
Would you find that to be an absolutely incredible thing? That the priest would actually give himself for you? That's what it says of Christ. Chapter 9, in verse number 14. Look at these words. But how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Wonderful blood that Christ has shed for us. He offered himself without blemish to God. And he cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. He did that for us. He offered himself. It says it in chapter 10. One more place. Verse 10 to 14. By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Let those words soak in for a minute. One sacrifice was sufficient to perfect you forever. Isn't that beautiful? He did that for you. He did that for me. That's what the text is telling us right here in Isaiah. He offered himself up. Now, the the word glory in the Greek, doxa, is our Greek word. We get the word doxology from such a word. Uh, it, 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 by definition, means to give your opinion. Alright? Give your opinion. What you think of someone. What you think of something. What, what is their reputation now to you? How would you express what they have done? You know, every time it's used in the New Testament, it speaks of a good thing. Does that surprise you? The word glory. It always speaks of praise or honor or glory. I really think it's a natural response of a thankful heart. Should we be thankful? Wouldn't we praise Him? Wouldn't we speak well of Him? Wouldn't we give our opinion if we're truly thankful? In Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, it tells us, in everything give thanks. Right? In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Not only is that a command... And we should be doing that anyway. But it's what we call present tense in the, in the Greek, which means do it right now and keep on doing it as long as it's now. Alright? So when are, when are we going to stop giving thanks then? You get the idea of the word, right? Continual. Continually giving thanks. Now, what I don't like about that verse is that it, I have to be commanded to do it. <laughs> I wish it were a a heart that was ready to do that. I wish it was one that already knew to do that and was doing it and didn't need some reminder that it should or a command that it must. You see, when I think of giving thanks and giving glory and giving praise, I really wish I were more spontaneous with that. How about you? 
I wish that I could read such words like we read this morning in Isaiah 53 and immediately go into praise. Paul was writing some of the, if we say it this way, okay, understand me for a second. Paul's writing the book of Romans, right? Some people consider one of the driest New Testament books out there because it's all theology. Having a degree in theology, I loved it. But most people say, huh, that's heavy stuff. And into chapter 9, 10, and so on, he was hitting on topics that most people would have fallen asleep reading. Just, whoa, this is just beyond me. I don't get it at all. But in the midst of that, Paul just breaks out in a doxology. It's amazing what moved his heart to praise the Lord. All the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God, right in the middle of a section that most people don't even fathom what it means. I said... Couldn't something like that trigger my heart too? Or must I, must I be propped up some way in order to have this heart of mine start saying thanks? There's a danger that we're told of. Paul warned Timothy of this. He said in the last days, he starts talking about people. He says in chapter 3, verse 2 of Second Timothy, he says, in the last day, there will be those who will be And he starts a whole list of things that they will be known for. But one of those things was ungrateful. Is it possible that a society can be known for being ungrateful? That's a clue that you're in the end times. Have you ever noticed it in society like ours now? Ungrateful. I don't want to be numbered in that list, do you? Ungrateful people. Ungrateful people. That's the negative of thankful. Negative. If we take that verse in Thessalonians, in everything give thanks, and then you take the little Greek letter A, we call it alpha, and stuff it onto the front of that word thankful, you've got ungrateful. Unthankful. That's exactly the way we see things going around us, I'm afraid. Timothy's warning was that leaders will be like this. And pastors will be like this. And people will be like this because people follow leaders. And if leaders are unthankful, and if pastors are unthankful, what do you get of a congregation? Unthankful. It's a terrible plague. Can you imagine a church full of ungrateful people? This passage in Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting himself to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. See what he's done. And have we stopped to say, thank you, Lord, that you did this for me. Now, he goes on as well as as he's explaining this verse. You're probably reading verse number 10 in Isaiah 53 saying, wow, there's a lot of pronouns in there. He, him, 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 he, 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 him. You say, who's who? That's, that could get kind of confusing, actually. And it's even worse when you try to pull it from the original. Because we don't use capital letters. You say, okay, who's who? who who's being given and who is being thankful and who is who's, uh, pleased with this? Well, on the one hand, it does speak of Christ. We know that. But the Lord was pleased to crush Christ putting Christ to grief. If Christ would render himself as a guilt offering, Christ will see his offspring. Christ will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in Christ's hand. If you put his name in some of those hymns and keys, then that would say, yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense, what Christ has done for us. 
But consider also as these pronouns speak of the Father. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, the Father will see Christ's offspring. The Father will prolong Christ's days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. In a sense, the Father will be vindicated, the Father will be rewarded, and he will vindicate and reward his Son in the same act. You see? These words may be a little bit confusing, but in that, they're both participating, and who gets the glory? They do. The glory goes to them. Now, I, I can see that, and I can say, okay, what about these words, the offspring? What, what do you mean by the offspring? He will see his offspring. Those who believe the message. The offspring, the children of God. He will prolong his days. The concept in Hebrew means it's stretched on forever and ever. We call that eternity. The good pleasure of the Lord, his delight and his will. You've got the aspects of obedience here and the results of the, that comes in a blessing that he will prosper him. The whole picture matches so beautifully what's told to us in Philippians chapter 2, who Jesus Christ, taking on the form of a bondservant, humbled himself and became obedient to death, right? Even death on a cross. And how did the Father respond to that? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And you know what the end result of that name is? Every knee will bow, right? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I can picture him saying, I can't wait for that moment when my son gets all the glory he deserves for what he has done. Every tongue will say it. Every knee will bow. Does that include yours and mine? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Father can't wait to see this. In this, you've got some pictures of God's kindness. And I just hold it up for you to admire for a minute. That he spared not his only begotten son, but delivered him up for us all, that he might deliver us from death. Isn't that kindness to you? That he would not allow his death, the death of Christ, to be useless and unprofitable, but it will yield abundant fruit. He said that is, is his will. It is the Lord's will that Christ be recognized for what he has done. That he gets the glory. Even the psalmist said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We've got a lot to speak about. The Savior who has done this for us. And into Revelation chapter 5. There is a beautiful picture in Revelation chapter 5 of praise breaking out in heaven. And I'm just going to walk through a couple of verses here with you. But listen to these words. Revelation 5 begins, I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's the Father, written a book written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping! Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne, with the four living creatures, and the elders, 
a lamb standing as if slain. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him, the Father, who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, all the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, purchased for God with your with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Now it keeps on going this way, but notice something real simple. The father's holding this book and the son comes and takes it. And as he's turning with it to open it up, praise starts breaking out among the people there in the, the, that are viewing it. The father didn't say stop, did he? He loves it when you give glory to the Son. And this participation, they start to praise, and they start to praise, and they start to praise. You'll notice something interesting in Scripture. The angels know how to praise God. And they do it often, and we can learn a lot from that. But there's one thing an angel can't say. Thank you. Only you can do that. Because Jesus died for who? You and me. So if you go through their praises, yes, they're giving Him glory for everything, but there's one thing that only you and I can say, and that is, thank you. Because it's applied to us. So we see this beautiful picture of of the glory, the Father delighting in the glory of the Son. Now, back to Isaiah 53 and verse number 12. Let's look at the other side of this too. Something just absolutely stunning I found in verse 12. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. I will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death, was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Say, okay, what's so remarkable here? Notice, if you will, you could even check me on this. Scan through the whole chapter. This is the first time the pronoun I is used. All the way through, talking about our sins and we, we like sheep have gone astray. On and on, it's speaking of negative things directed toward us. Almost all the way through it. And then all of a sudden, after Isaiah is writing and he, he gets the picture at the end, that Jesus Christ, he didn't even know who to call him yet. But at this point, he says, this one who will die for me, this one will get the glory. The Father has planned it. So this one, I must say something about. Remember, glory is giving your opinion, right? All of a sudden, he jumps right onto the page and says, and I, Isaiah had to say something all of a sudden. And what did he have to say? I, I, he's going to esteem him highly. Intensely personal here all of a sudden. I will allot him a portion with the great. I want to give you a picture of what this is. Picture, if you will, a general coming back from an overwhelmingly victorious battle. The crowds line the street. They're all there to praise their hero. As they watch him go by, you see a crowd, you see a, a, a leader who will give him praise and all that. But individually, that crowd is made of people. 
And one person is so thankful that you hear his voice ring out. Because when there's a hundred voices, there's a hundred individuals, right? One voice starts to speak. And it speaks his praise as he goes by. With the great, with the many, when they're gathered together to recognize and give glory to him, I myself want to give my part too. That's my paraphrase of this verse. I want to give my part. I want to be included with them. For a great general comes into our crowd. They give him the spoils of war. He's won the Father's approval. He's won forgiveness for us. He's purchased our pardon. He has bought us with his righteousness. He's given to us his sanctification. He's given to us eternal life. He's given to us hope and joy and peace. He's conquered death. He's conquered sin. He's conquered fear. He's conquered guilt. All these gifts, He's come and He's distributing them to us. Are we going to just stand there with our mouths closed? Can we? Or must we say something to His honor and glory? All of these words are intensified here. The verbs are intensified all the way through. He will intensely distribute the spoil. I don't know what that looks like, but it's got to be better than Christmas. He will intensely share with us what he has won in the victory. So Isaiah responds and intensely joins the crowd and gives glory to the Lord. The idea of glory here in the Hebrew means it has great weight. It's given in abundance. There is a, one picture I want to leave in your mind, even right now as we're talking about this. Go back to First Chronicles 29. A book that probably a number of us have never even tried to read because, well, it just doesn't look all that interesting. Especially the first handful of chapters that are only genealogy. It's like, ooh, numbers and all those kind of things. Not too interested. There's numbers in chapter 29 too. First Chronicles chapter did I say first? Yeah, First Chronicles 29. There's numbers in here too. I'm looking at Second Chronicles. That's why it doesn't make any sense to me. All right, there it is. Listen to this. This is fascinating. King David said to his entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple is not, uh, is not for man, but for the Lord. Now with all my ability I have provided for the house of my God the gold of the things of gold, the silver of the things of silver, the bronze things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, and he just keeps on going through this list of all these beautiful stones. Here's a picture. David wanted so desperately to build a temple for the Lord. The Lord said, no, David, you're not going to. You're a man with bloody hands. I'm going to use your son to build this temple. So David got in his mind, well, if I can't build it, I can provide for it. So he spent the rest of his life collecting things that would go into building of this temple, the gold and the silver and the wood. He's been collecting it and putting it in all these storehouses around him. And as he collected these things, he couldn't wait for this one day when his son is proclaimed king and he walks up to his son, not only with the blueprint for the temple, and the, the responsibility for seeing it built. But David had arranged everything. So all the son really had to do, Solomon, was snap his fingers and there goes the project. 
Right? All the supplies are there. The people are there. Everything is provided for him that this should be done. Well, David, this is his day. Right? He's been living for this day that he could present this before the Lord and say, these are for the temple. Now, watch what happens here. Moreover, he says in verse 3, In my delight, in the house of my God, the treasures I have of gold and of silver, I give to the house of my God, over and above all that I already provided for the holy temple. So he says, okay, see the storehouses are all full. But now, I'm reaching into my pocket, so to speak, and I'm going to hand the Lord my offering from my heart, over and above everything else. Namely, verse 4, 3,000 talents of gold. You ready? The equivalent today is 112 tons of gold. 7,000 talents of silver. 260 tons of silver. The gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, all that's done. Then he asks a question in verse number 5 at the end. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? That's another way of saying, do you want to give him glory too? This is my expression of giving him glory. I bring all this gold and all this silver and I lay it as because he deserves the glory. And so he says, who wants to join me? And you know what? It gets almost ridiculous at this point. Because everyone chimes in and they want to have a part in giving him glory. And they start to mound up, and a mound is probably a good word for it. They start to mound up the treasures before the Lord. Verse number 7, for the service for the house of God they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold. That's three hundred no one hundred and eighty seven tons of gold on top of the rest. Ten thousand talents of silver. They estimate that to be three hundred and seventy five tons of silver. Eighteen thousand talents of brass. Six hundred and seventy five tons of brass. And they're not done yet. Somebody brought out the iron. One hundred thousand talents of Iron. You're looking at a number close to 4,000 tons of iron. Each one is getting bigger and bigger. I look at that and I say, boy, what an exciting day that had to be. Just to imagine them all walking forward and laying that before it, and the mound growing bigger and bigger. What do you think glory is going to be like when we stand before the Lord in heaven and start to give our praise? We bring our praise, we add it to the praise already there. The angels have been perfecting this already. But now we add our thanks on top of it. And the piles get larger and larger and larger and larger. And I can't help but think how exciting that's going to be just to see the piles grow before our Lord. And this church, Hillsdale Bible Church, will stand before Him to give Him the glory, right? What are we going to hand Him, folks? What are we going to lay there too before that throne? Is our voice going to be added to that whole throng up there? Our voice, my voice, will it be numbered among them? Isaiah said, put me in the list. I want to give him praise. He deserves the glory. I want something to give. See, it's an individual thing, isn't it? As well as a collective thing. 
he gets the praise. The church exists for the glory of Christ. I believe that with all my heart. We exist for the glory of Christ. We're here that we might speak of his reputation in this community. We serve and love each other in light of the fact that he loved us and served us. We give ourselves to one another because he gave himself to us. His glory is something we partake in, don't we? We should. That's the picture that he has given to us. His praise should be the first thing from our mouths. If there's ever a time for a cheerleader, let us be the loudest for all that he's done for us. The glory belongs to Him. Where do you start? Right inside the heart, right? Right inside the heart. We're about to pass around the cup and the bread. Are you thankful? Does He deserve the glory for what we participate in this morning? Are we ready to say thanks? I hope so. Because if nothing else, I want a thankful heart. And I want a a kind of heart that is ready to give him praise. As we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you have done. You, You see down here, A congregation that loves you. A congregation that is so, so grateful for what you have done. You have died for us. You have changed us forever. And now we stand before you and say, thank you, Lord. We partake of this bread and of this cup. We are mindful of how great our sin is. For we're so thankful how great your mercy is. As we share in these things, Lord, may we have thankful hearts. May we be be quick to give you the glory today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.